0: Podcast number 528 for the 29th of January, 2017. This week, criminals are building more convincing tricks that attempt to get users to reveal their login names and passwords, and it's easy to be fooled. Google offers two-factor authentication, and if you use any Google services, it's a good idea to take the time needed to set this up. In short circuits, a new record was set for the number of data breaches in 2016, but the real record was set in the number of records that were exposed. Sears has an exciting new application that helps you buy tires. Well, alright, maybe exciting isn't quite the right word, but it is useful. In Spare Parts, only on the website, better late than never, Facebook finally tries to take on the scourge of fake news. And there are efforts to design ways to give remote employees and third parties an easy-to-use method for secure access to corporate resources. A listener sent me a link that he had recently received. It claimed to be a link to a file that he needed. But when he hovered the mouse cursor over the link, he saw that it went to a site in Greece. It was an attempt to trick him into revealing his login credentials so the crook could use them. I used a process by which I can safely view the target page. It consisted of a single automatic redirect using JavaScript. The redirect went to another site also in Greece. Investigating that site I found that the page greets the user with welcome to Google Docs, upload and share your documents securely. An embedded form pretends to be a login screen for Google Docs. provides options to log in with credentials from other services, so potentially it could collect the user's credentials for Google, Yahoo, Hotmail, and AOL. Based on what I saw in the code, the fake page would be a fairly good representation of Google. It's the Google credentials that are the most useful because they provide access to all of Google's services. This is an uncommonly good bit of work, and it can fool even experienced users. Phishing scams are usually easy to spot because of spelling errors, bad grammar, fraudulent URLs, or attachments that are obviously dangerous. This time, not so much. If you use Gmail, you are at risk. The crooks start with a Gmail account that they've already gained access to by using a method such as the one I just described. Then they start sending messages from the Gmail account to people in the user's Google contacts. Next, some unfortunate receiver finds a message from a known person. All of that has been done before. But here's where the thieves display their creativity. Because they have access to a real Gmail account, they also have access to messages that have been sent from that Gmail account. Their phony messages use a subject line, text, and attachments from emails already sent by that account. As a result, the message is from somebody the recipient knows, and the topic seems legitimate. The message has an attachment that's actually an image of the attachment sent previously, and the user who clicks that image will be taken to what looks like the Google login page. Sound familiar? That's what I described earlier. The thieves are about to gain access to another account. So, thinking the login page is legitimate, the victim enters a username and password. Their account is immediately compromised, and the crooks can start sending more fake messages to the new victim's correspondence. The URL looks legitimate. It goes to accounts.google.com, but there's a little bit of text in front of the URL. That little bit of text says data colon text Forward slash HTML, and that makes all the difference in the world. The prefix tells your browser to consider the document at the phishing site as HTML. Once the crooks have your credentials, they start sending fake messages within seconds. Avoidance requires uncommon diligence. You have to look at every single URL, and if you see one with that phony data colon text forward slash HTML in front of it, you know it's a phony. Gmail can be secure. Google offers two-factor authentication, and while it's cumbersome to have to receive an authorization code every time you log in, or log in from a new device, or you clear the cookies on an existing device, it can eliminate a great deal of trouble. And that's what we'll take a look at next. (music) Google's two-factor authentication makes using the service a little more cumbersome, but it can stop crooks dead in their tracks. Google accounts have a username and a password. As described previously, thieves have clever ways to get you to reveal your password to them. At its most basic, two-factor authentication, you also see it referred to as 2FA, is a method of confirming a user's claimed identity by requiring more than one identity token multi-factor authentication components can use something you know a password or pin for example something you have a usb device or token or key or some physical characteristic a fingerprint iris scan or voice pattern passwords are virtually universal and often the only items used single factor authentication is relatively easy to break though a second factor whether it's a physical characteristic or a physical device makes defeating the security system a lot harder. An article in Wikipedia discusses the use of RSA secure ID tokens that have a built-in screen to display the generated authentication number, and that number is then typed in by the user. I have one of these for an account that needs to be particularly secure. The major drawback of authentication performed including something the person possesses is that that physical token has to be carried around by the user all the time. Loss and theft are risks. There is an alternative, though. Mobile phone two-factor authentication is an alternative method that avoids those issues. A dynamic passcode is sent to the user's mobile device by SMS or by a special app. There is no need for an additional dedicated token. The Wikipedia article notes that security of mobile-delivered tokens depends on the mobile operator's operational security, and it can be easily breached by wiretapping or by SIM cloning by national security agencies. If you want to establish two-factor authentication for Google, you start on the Sign-In Options page. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll need to enter your password even if you've already logged in to your Google account. Then click Get Started, and you'll be asked to provide a phone number. The phone can be either a cell phone or a landline. Cell phone users have the option of receiving a text message or a phone call. Landline users will not have the option of receiving a text message. Just a voice phone call. Then click Try It, and you'll receive a one-time code. Type that number in, and continue to a page of options. The first option is Backup Codes. Why? Well, you might need to log on to Google from a new device and you might not have your phone with you, so creating a list of one-time codes is useful. You do have to print it and carry it around with you, though. That's a bit of a security issue, but without your other credentials it's not useful. A second option is called Google Prompt. Select this if you want to replace the security code that you need to enter at login time with a pop-up message on your phone. I found this to be really quite easy to use. You'll need either an Android or an iOS phone. Start in the appropriate store for your phone, download the Google Authenticator and install it. Continue on the PC or the Mac until you see a barcode to scan. Then you open the application on the phone, which will require logging in once again as a security measure, and allow it to scan the barcode. Once you've done that, you need to type the security code from the phone into the browser. Now, this may seem like an awful lot of work, but you do most of it only once to set up the prompt option. And once you've done that, your phone will be connected to your Gmail account, and when you log in from an unknown computer, or when the person who has stolen your credentials tries to log in, you will receive a message on your phone. If it's you trying to log in, just say, yep, I'm trying to log in. If you're not the person trying to log in, click No, and the thief who's trying to use your account will be very disappointed. There's an option for an authenticator app. It's the third option in the list. It can be used to obtain verification codes even when your phone is offline. It's available for Android and iOS phones. In fact, that's part of the option I just described. It's required for Google Prompt, but it can be used independently. The fourth option adds a backup phone, of a spouse or a close friend so that you can use it to receive codes if your phone is lost or otherwise unavailable. And the final option allows you to use a security key. That would be a hardware device that would plug into a USB port on your computer. Security is increasingly important and Google's two-factor authentication is worth looking into. Mm -hmm. short circuits it should be a surprise to nobody that 2016 was another record year for data theft more than 4,000 breaches were reported during the year and 4.2 billion records were exposed the previous high was 1 billion in 2013 the 2016 data breach quick view report by risk-based security says the number of data breaches increased only slightly in 2016 but the impact per incident, increased dramatically. Attacks that exposed more than 1 million records increased by more than 60%. Attacks that exposed more than 10 million records more than doubled. Risk-based security says businesses accounted for about half of the breaches and that more than 80% of the exposed records came from attacks on businesses. The Online Trust Alliance's 2017 Cyber Incident and Breach Response Guide takes a slightly different approach to reporting cyber incidents, which include all corporate data losses, ransomware, unreported breaches, and other incidents. The Online Trust Alliance lists 82,000 such incidents that affected organizations around the world, more than 200 every day. Most such incidents are not reported, though, so the OTA estimates that the true number for the year could exceed a quarter million. And a report by Experian called the 2016-2017 Data Breach Response Guide says the average cost of a data breach is also on the rise. Quoting the Ponemon Institute, the Experian report says the average total cost of a data breach increased from about $3.8 million to $4 million in 2016. The average cost to a business per lost or stolen record with sensitive or confidential information increased from $154 in 2015 to $158 in this year's study. Besides being a high-cost single event, data breaches have long-term implications. The OTA report notes that the Internet Society found that nearly 6 in 10 customers, 60%, would stop doing business with a company that had a data breach. Nearly all cyber incidents, about 90% of them, could have been avoided. That's according to the OTA. Some will always be inevitable. If you'd like to read any of those reports, Risk-Based Securities 2016 Data Breach Quick View Report, the Online Trust Alliance's 2017 Cyber Incident and Breach Readiness Guide, or Experience 2016-2017 Data Breach Response Guide, you'll find links to them on the TechBinder Worldwide website. this could be the least exciting computer application ever. Shopping for tires? Well, now there's an app for that. Sears Auto Center is piloting a digital tire journey. It's a web app that relies on IBM Watson natural language classifier service, and the goal is to help customers identify the appropriate tires to fit their driving preferences. A tire is a tire, or so you may think. The Sears application will allow users to place themselves in one of the following categories. Comfort warrior, value seeker, off-roader, high-performance, safety seeker, or winter warrior. And people who are old enough to remember when Chicken Man was on the radio will understand why I keep wanting to type winged warrior here. And yes, winged is pronounced that way, at least by Chicken Man. But to get back to the main topic, choosing the right tire can be difficult because thousands of different tire brands, makes, and models exist. Of course, your selection will be automatically limited to tires that are the right size for your vehicle. Websites that sell tires often limit users to a drop-down menu of pre-selected tires that don't take into account the driving and lifestyle preferences of shoppers. To find the best tire, consumers might want to consider their everyday routines and hobbies in addition to their vehicle's make, model, and tire size. A parent who's primarily concerned about safety driving children to and from band practice would see tires with a higher safety rating, and the service recommends tires that are the most consistent with the buyer's needs. Brian Kaner, president of Sears Auto Centers, says the digital tire journey helps customers cut through the clutter by integrating digital, mobile, and online experiences with in-store shopping. The user can start by entering a license plate number or the make and model of the vehicle. That's right. If Sears knows your license plate number, they also know the make and model of the car it's on. Or at least they do sometimes. I have a ham radio license plate, and when I enter that N8 POV, the service tells me that it's too short. So I just described the car with year, make, model, and trim information. The service recommended five tire choices, That's actually better than what I've seen from the dealer or from most other tire stores. If you'd like to give it a drive, check out the Digital Tire Experience. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And Sears Auto Center has more than 600 locations nationwide. TechBiter Worldwide, on the other hand, has only one location worldwide, and in spare parts, only on our one worldwide website this week. Better late than never, Facebook finally tries to take on the scourge of fake news. And there are efforts to design ways to give remote employees and third parties an easy-to-use method for secure access to corporate resources. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like send me an email from there. See you next week.